Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can gather together this evening for this time of fellowship, for prayer, for studying your word. We thank you for the present freedoms that we enjoy. Father, we continue to pray for Israel and the peace of Israel. And of course, we know that that will not find ultimate fulfillment until Christ returns. And yet we are told to pray for the peace of Israel, and we do. Father, we just pray for that situation over there, that that hostility will cease. Father, we just pray this evening as we take this time to come before you uh, to study your word, that this will be a time that we can be sensitive to the teaching and to the illuminating ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray that we will be challenged by the things that we study this evening, that we might grow thereby. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm going to switch over now. I'm going to go live streaming here on Facebook, and then we'll uh, go ahead and jump into the notes. And uh, I've got that going. Dan, you'll have to let me know if that's, uh, if that's a green light there. Okay, everybody, let me switch over here to the uh, Bible study notes. <clears throat> and... Uh, get this situated a little bit better here. All right, we are picking up in our study of soteriology. And uh, we are live streaming, aren't we, Dan? Uh, a little bit behind here. Okay. Okay. All right, so uh, we are continuing our study in soteriology. And, uh, of course, soteriology is the study of salvation. Over the last few months, we have been looking uh, at a number of aspects. We spent four hours covering the introduction, doing a 30,000-foot flyover of the major doctrines and subjects related to soteriology. And uh, we moved into uh, the definition of the terms of uh, salvation in the Old Testament and New Testament. We looked at the subject of who saves who, that is, who is the one who saves We moved in there from talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, and uh, from there we discussed uh, the three persons within the Godhead and the role that they play. We spent a night talking about the role of God the Father in soteriology. Last week we finished up uh, several lessons uh, uh, that we'd been working through on the role of God the Son Uh, tonight we pick up and we will talk about the role of God the Holy Spirit. And this is very fascinating to me. I absolutely love this. This, is, this has been a real uh, journey for me. I've studied these things over the years, over the last couple decades. But whenever I get into teaching something, of course, I mine it uh, in a much greater way. And so I wind up fleshing out things that uh, are new to me. And that's always the thing about being a student of the Word, is you're always advancing. You're always learning something new. And this is really what a teacher ought to be doing. A teacher always ought to be advancing. Uh, in his knowledge of the languages, of history, of theology, of culture, uh, and all the things pertinent to the study of the Word of God. It's a multidisciplinary um, uh, fields that will come together when it comes to studying theology, because you're studying history, uh, you're studying geography, you're studying topography, you're studying culture, you're studying language. Uh, there's a lot of uh, fields of study that come together in the study of the Word of God, and so this is something that is always uh, should be advancing for the student of the Word. So tonight we're going to pick up and talk about the role of God the Holy Spirit in soteriology. Now, the Holy Spirit is God, and he displays the characteristics of personhood. Uh, when referring to the Holy Spirit, 
Jesus used the demonstrative masculine pronoun he from the Greek akainos, which indicates personhood, which indicates personhood. Uh, and so when you see Jesus here referring to the Spirit in John chapter 16, verse 13. Now here, Jesus in the upper room discourse is talking about the special ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, that was to begin on the day of Pentecost. That's in Acts chapter 2. That's when the church began. And Jesus here says, but he, talking about the Spirit, but he, the Spirit of truth, uh, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes. And notice that this is a future tense. This is anticipating that special ministry because as God, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He is equally and fully everywhere all the time. Remember that, uh, that when we spent the evening talk about the, talking about the attributes of God, one of those attributes is the attribute of omnipresence, which means that God is equally and fully everywhere all the time. He's never more in one place or uh, less in, an, in, in another place, that he's equally and fully everywhere all the time. Now, we may be aware of him uh, at any particular time, but, uh, but it's not like he's more in one place and less in another. Uh, but here, when Jesus is talking about this, he's talking about that future ministry of the Holy Spirit that would begin on the day of Pentecost. But again, he uses here uh, the Greek demonstrative uh, masculine pronoun akainos uh, to point out that the Holy Spirit is a person. He refers to him as he. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak to you, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Uh, Jesus goes on in verse 14, he says, He will glorify me, and he will take of mine, and he will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Now, in addition to this, the scripture reveals that the Holy Spirit can be lied to. Uh, when we look at Acts chapter 5, verse 3, remember when uh, Peter was talking with Ananias, remember the incident with Ananias and Sapphira, it says uh, in verse 3, but, Ananias, uh, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, you cannot lie uh, to a force such as electricity. You can lie to a person. And then, of course, in verse 4, he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. And very clearly uh, arguing the point that the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Godhead. And we talked about this a few months back when we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity, that they are co-equal, co-infinite, and co-eternal, and worthy of all praise and honor and worship. Uh, so again, the, the Spirit is a person. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. One can think of in Ephesians 4.30 where Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Spirit can also be quenched. In 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Paul says, Do not quench the Spirit. The Spirit can be resisted. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51, uh, Peter here, talking to some unbelieving Israelites, said, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit can be resisted. Now, this is a display of negative volition. Uh, to where the Spirit had been working uh, in their hearts, but they were resisting 
the Holy Spirit. The Spirit can be blasphemed. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus talks about blasphemy against the Spirit. And I'm bringing these up just simply to point out that these are activities done by a person. Because uh, we're talking about the personhood of God the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible reveals that the Spirit was involved in the creation. In fact, when you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says, "...and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters." So the Spirit of God here is a reference to the Holy Spirit, and it's talking about uh, his, uh, his work uh, in the creation. And so he was uh, involved in the creation. It was the Holy Spirit who helped to bring about the birth of Jesus. Remember in Luke 1.35, here we have the angel Gabriel said to her, this would be to Mary, said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, we talked about this a while back when we were talking about the virgin conception of Jesus, uh, because remember that Jesus did not have a biological father. He did not have a human father. And uh, Mary, uh, she conceived, God the Holy Spirit supernaturally conceived the humanity of Christ, his biological life, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and we talked about that, how that is parthenogenesis, a virgin conception, virgin born, and how Mary was Christotokos, she was the bearer of the humanity of Christ, but this because the Holy Spirit uh, was involved uh, in bringing about the person of Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit also guided the writers of Scripture, guided the writers of Scripture, I think of in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2, where the writer says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. So the Spirit of the Lord uh, guided the writers of Scripture. And when you study the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration, uh, verbal meaning that the inspiration of God's word extends to the very words themselves. Plenary meaning full, means all of scripture is inspired, not just some of it. And I think of the passage in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 where Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture there is pasa grafe, and grafe refers to the written word, that all scripture is God-breathed, theopneustos. Uh, and so it finds its origin in God himself. But the Holy Spirit in particular guided the writers of Scripture such that without compromising uh, the human writer's uh, literary style or choice of words, uh, the end result was that what they produced was in fact the Word of God. It was exactly what God intended. In fact, 2 Peter 1.21 is very helpful in this. It says, but no, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Let me pause right there. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. In other words, people didn't just come up with the scriptures. It was not something that, was, that originated with people. It was not human in origin. Okay? It is, in fact, the word of God and not merely the word of man. But notice the latter part of verse uh, 21 there. It says, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now what's interesting here is the word moved uh, 
translates the Greek verb pharaoh, P-H-E-R-O, pharaoh, P-H-E-R-O. And that word is used by Luke in the book of Acts to refer to a ship that is driven along by wind. It refers to, Luke uses it in the book of Acts to, to refer to a ship that was carried along by a wind. In other words, the wind is what was driving the ship. And that same concept here is what is at work uh, with regard to these persons. But men were moved. In other words, the Spirit moved them. And when it says that they were moved, notice the verb here is present passive uh, nominative. Uh, but the passive voice means that these men passively uh, were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, we're not, uh, we're not familiar with all of the particulars of how this works, except that God the Holy Spirit worked through these men uh, such that what they wrote at the end of the day was, in fact, the Word of God. And... Um, and of course, when we think about the Bible, the Bible is really a library. When you pick up your Bible, it is a collection of 66 books. Uh, uh, and these books were written by roughly 40 human authors spanning a period of about 1,400 years. And they wrote primarily in Hebrew and Greek, although there are some sections in the book of Daniel that are in uh, Aramaic. Uh, Dan, I think Daniel chapters 2 through 7, if I remember correctly. But by and large, uh, we have 40 human authors writing over a period of about 14 or 1,500 years uh, in different languages. And yet what they wrote uh, was exactly what God intended as this Holy Spirit uh, moved them and superintended their writings in such a way that, again, without compromising their, uh, the, the human writer's personality or literary style or choice of words— again, work through them in such a way that the end product was, in fact, the Word of God. And it's interesting because when you read through the writings of Paul, for example, Paul, Paul has certain words that he uses that are very Pauline. He has phrases that he uses that are very Pauline. And, uh, and Peter's the same way, and so is Jude, and so is James, and so is Matthew, and so is Samuel, and, and, uh, and Elijah, and Jeremiah, and you, you find that, that these authors had their own choice of words, and this is true for anybody. But again, the Holy Spirit guided the writers of Scripture, and again, we're just talking about activities that the Spirit does that demonstrates His personhood. He also convicts unbelievers of the sin of unbelief. Now, we're going to spend several nights on this particular, on these few verses right here, because this is very important soteriologically when we're talking about our salvation. Uh, but here, Jesus announces a special ministry of the Holy Spirit that would come in the world, that would exist during the time of the church age, during the dispensation of the church age. And Jesus says here in John 16, 8, and he, when he comes... Will Now, notice he's talking future tense here, because again, this is a special ministry that God the Holy Spirit would have in the world uh, at the time of, uh, of the beginning of the church in Acts 2. And he, when he comes into the world, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, the word sin there, the word sin there, hamartia, the noun, is singular, uh, because the Spirit, when He comes into the world, 
when it comes to his ministry with regard to salvation, when he's convicting unbelievers, he doesn't convict them of many sins, though people have many sins. He convicts them of one sin. And Jesus tells us what that is in verse 9 concerning sin, singular, because they do not believe in me. You see, Jesus, the Spirit, is convicting unbelievers of one sin, and really one sin only, and that is the sin of unbelief, because that is the only sin that will keep you out of heaven. And, uh, and so he's, he's uh, working in the hearts of unbelievers. And this is, this is important for us with regard to evangelism, because when we come and we share the gospel with people, we know... <laughs> we know that God the Holy Spirit is already working in their hearts. Now, that person may be suppressing the truth, uh, but nonetheless, we know that the Spirit is working in their hearts. The Spirit is also the one who regenerates believers at the moment of faith in Christ. Uh, John 3, 6 talks about being born of the Spirit. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That's our being born again. And then in verse 7, he says, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And the word again there translates the Greek adverb anothen, uh, which can also mean from above. In fact, that's what the um, NASB has a marginal note there, from above. And uh, being born again or born from above, because it's genes anothen is the Greek. And it could be born from above, that is from the source of heaven. And John 6.63, Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. It is the Spirit who gives life. And so at the moment of faith in Christ, we are said to be born again. We are said to have new life. That there's a change that goes on in the heart of the person who comes to faith in Christ. And so they are said to be born again. The Spirit is also the one who baptizes these believers into union with Christ. Now, this is a, really a, a collaborative ministry. If you go back to Matthew chapter 3, I think it's verse 11, if I remember correctly, when John the Baptist was talking about Jesus, and he says, and when he comes, uh, John says, I baptize you uh, in water, uh, for repentance, but he who is coming after me will baptize you, will baptize you, future tense, in the Spirit and in fire. And, uh, and so the baptism of the Spirit is something that is collaborative between both Jesus and the Spirit. Uh, but for the sake of this study, we're focusing on the Spirit at this particular point. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, For by one Spirit, and notice the word Spirit there is capitalized. I think the NASB translators did it correct here. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And uh, the verb here, baptizo, just simply means to be placed into or identified with is really the idea behind baptism. Uh, the translators transliterated the word, and in doing so, really didn't do us any favor. They just simply uh, brought the Greek word directly into the English. So they take baptizo, and they bring it into the English as baptized. Well, it doesn't really help us, because they're transliterating the word rather than translating the word. Um, but we were all placed into one body. That is, the Holy Spirit takes us at the moment of faith in Christ 
and moves us from being in Adam to being in Christ, takes us from being part of Satan's kingdom of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of the beloved Son. This is a transference that occurs, and this is part of the work of the Spirit. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit indwells each believer. Now, this is an innovation. This is something that was new for the church age. Notice in uh, John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Now, the word helper here translates the Greek word parakletos, parakletos, and it's also translated as a comforter. Uh, And it refers to somebody who comes alongside you to give you guidance, to direct you. Uh, The term actually has legal connotation of like an attorney who comes alongside you in a court of law and gives you counsel and encourages you and, and tries to uphold you when you're in, this, in, in that setting. And the word another here, by the way, there's, uh, I'll just go off trail here for just a moment. There's two words that's translated another. Uh, one is the word heteros, heteros, and that refers to another of a different kind. So when we talk about uh, somebody like, like, um, like a heterosexual, heteros there is another of a different kind. Uh, female is over against male, okay? But the other word that is translated another is the Greek adjective here, alos, A-L-L-O-S, alos. And the Greek adjective here means another of the same kind, another of the same kind. And so when here, when Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever, uh, here he's talking about the third member of the Godhead is who he's talking about. But notice verse 17, and Jesus is clear. He specifies or he he clarifies here in verse 17. He says, that is the spirit of truth uh, whom the world cannot receive. Because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you. And notice the last clause here, and will be where? In you. You see, this was an innovation, because when you study the the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, uh, with the exception of really one passage that I'm aware of in Ezekiel, uh, by and large, the Spirit did not indwell people. He came upon people. He empowered people. But he did not indwell And so this was an innovation. This was something new. And in the Old Testament, the Spirit really just came upon a few people, artisans, judges, prophets, priests, kings, really just a few people. But not everybody had the Spirit. Uh, But here, Jesus said, he abides with you and will be in you. And uh, that prepositional phrase is very helpful. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Uh, Paul says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells where? In you. Uh, So at the moment of faith in Christ, really all three members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all three come to dwell within the believer. But here Paul is making special note of the Spirit. And then, of course, over in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul says again, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? The Spirit also seals each believer. 
Ephesians 1.13, Paul says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now the word sealed uh, translates uh, the Greek verb sragizo. That's one of those hard words to uh, pronounce, sragizo. Uh, It doesn't flow very well in the English, Uh, so I had to practice that a couple thousand times, but I think I got it down. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, the Holy Spirit is himself the seal uh, with regard to our salvation. And so we are said to be sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And uh, Paul also mentions that again over in Ephesians 4.30 where he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, So the Holy Spirit also seals us. The Holy Spirit also gives us spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. And again, you just kind of have to pay attention to the language of the text. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11, Paul says, But to each one, that is to each believer, each person within the church, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, let me pause for just a moment, because when it comes to spiritual gifts, the gifts are not for self-edification, they are for the edification of others. And the word edify, even from the Greek, it translates the Greek word akoidome, which is a compound word, oikos, meaning house, and dome, to build. And akoidome means to build up. And when we think about the function of a spiritual gift, it should be, excuse me, for the edification of others. It should be for the building up of other people. And, uh, and that's what the spiritual gift should do. So, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, Paul mentions several gifts here. He says, for to one is given the word of wisdom, notice, through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, and to another faith, by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing, by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. And again, notice the use of the language there. We're talking about a person, not a force. So we just want to keep this in mind. Um, The Spirit also glorifies Jesus. And by the way, you can tell when the Spirit is uh, uh, being properly received in the life of a person, when the work of the Spirit is, is working properly, because that person will always seek to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. I know some people who spend all of their time talking about the Holy Spirit, and I, I put a question mark on that. Now, listen, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not against teaching on the Spirit. Clearly, that's a biblical concept and should be taught. But Jesus said in John 16, he says, But he, when he comes, the Spirit of truth, that's the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, And he will disclose to you what is to come. Notice verse 14. He will glorify who? Me. That's Jesus. 
So the work of the Spirit is to glorify Jesus. It's to lift him up. Uh, And when I see people who are glorifying Christ in their life and who are presenting Christ to others uh, through evangelism, and that's whether you're leaving a tract uh, at a a restaurant somewhere, or whether you're verbally talking to somebody about Christ or, or, you know, whatever means you use to communicate the gospel. When I see people glorifying Christ, I immediately think of this verse and I think, oh, well, I see the work of the Spirit in your heart. Because part of the work of the Spirit, uh, when he comes, is to glorify Jesus. The Spirit also empowers believers. Empowers believers. Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. And dissipation there is, uh, dissipation is uh, asotia, uh, means literally or basically sick without a cure. Um, For that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit And the filling of the Spirit here from the Greek verb plerao, uh, the form of the verb in the Greek is a present passive imperative. It's plerouste in the Greek. Uh, But it has the idea of empowering, has the idea of of a believer being yielded to the Spirit such that the Spirit is guiding the believer. Uh, The Spirit also sustains our spiritual walk. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And then in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Uh, The Spirit also loves Christians, loves us. The Spirit loves us. Uh, In Romans 15, 30, Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. But again, notice here, love is a function of personhood. And and that's all I'm doing. I'm I'm just simply pointing out these verses that show all these activities that are done by the Spirit, just demonstrating His personhood. The Spirit prays for people. Uh, If you look at Romans 8, 26 and 27, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. Thank God, because do Christians have weaknesses? I know I do. Both hands up, right? Right. And so he says here, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. Now, let me pause there, too. Is that true as well? Yes. I don't always know how to pray. I pray for people. I pray for my country. I pray for my business. I pray for my church. I pray for my family. I pray for co-workers and Bible study friends, and I pray for all sorts of people, but I don't always know how to pray particularly. Uh, And that's all Paul's getting at here. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself does what? Intercedes for us uh, with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is uh, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Spirit actually is praying for us. The Spirit is actually sending up prayers on our behalf. Now, I'm encouraged by that. And what I imagine sometimes is me sending up some prayer to the Lord, and I imagine the Spirit's up there, he's up there in space. My brain does this. It's my childhood, it's my child mentality, my my imagination gone wild. But I imagine he's up there, and my prayer goes up, and the Spirit catches it in a net and says, no, 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 and he rearranges the whole thing, and he sends it up. He says, here here you go, Lord, this is how it's supposed to go. Uh, So he's he's, uh, straightening all that out. 
but he's interceding for us. And again, that this is a function of a person. And so, you know, when I run into these cults who deny the Trinity, uh, the existence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and the personhood of each, uh, as I read through these verses, I'm just like blown away because it's like, well, how can, you, how can you deny the overwhelming evidence related to uh, the personhood of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit also comforts us. Again, he's called the helper, the parakletos, the helper, the comforter. He also teaches and guides, John 14, 26. Uh, here he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Now that's interesting because we talked about this before, how the Father sent the Son. Remember that? We spent a whole evening talking about how the Father sent the Son, how, how, how uh, the Father sent and Jesus went. Well, here we have the Father sending the Spirit in the name of Jesus. Uh, in my name, he says. But he says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. And by the way, this shows that there is a, an authority structure even within the members of the Godhead, that even though that they are co-equal, co-infinite, and co-eternal, and all equally God with the same attributes, yet there is leadership within the Trinity, that the Father is demonstrated basically as the leader uh, within the Trinity. Um, but notice when the Spirit comes, it says, He will teach you all things. He will teach you all things. Now, this assumes positive volition, that you are seeking the Lord. And when you are demonstrating positive volition and you're seeking the Lord and you're devoting yourself to Bible study, because what you value, you make time for. And that's a general rule of life. Children understand that, okay? Uh, but what you value, you make time for. And if you value God and you value His Word, you make time for God and you make time for His Word because you cannot live what you do not know. And learning God's Word necessarily precedes living God's will. Uh, but as you display positive volition and you seek the Lord, it says here that He will teach you all things. So He will not only help you to understand them. And sometimes this can be directly. I, I can't tell you the times I've been reading the Bible and all of a sudden I understand a passage. Uh, I have an aha moment, uh, you know, where I get a passage that maybe I've read before and didn't, didn't fully understand it. God often works through good gifted teachers as well, uh, men that He has gifted with the gift of teaching. And, uh, and these are gifts to the church, uh, whereby God, and I have learned through many godly and gifted teachers who have exercised their gifts well, uh, but it says here that he will teach you all things. And not only that, but he will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. He will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So the Spirit actually has a recalling ministry to where Scripture will be recalled to mind, uh, to our minds at times when we need it. So he teaches and he guides, uh, and he makes Scripture understandable. He makes Scripture understandable. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.11, 2, he says, For who among men knows the thoughts of the man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. He says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. And so this is a top-down uh, communication. This is from God, the Holy Spirit, to us, who helps us to understand these things. 
But once we understand it, it can be, it, it can go from a vertical to a horizontal. It can be communicated verbally. Paul says, which things, that is, divine truth, divine viewpoint, which things we also speak. So the Word of God and the revelation of the Word of God can be communicated uh, through writing, uh, through books. It can be communicated verbally. Uh, and so this, uh, this assumes that language... Which, God, which existed, by the way, among the members of the Godhead, because language exists in God. In fact, we have language because God imparted language to mankind. When he created Adam uh, in the garden, remember back in Genesis 2, when he formed him from the dust of the earth, and there was biological life in front of Adam, in front of the Lord, and it says that the Lord breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the Neshemach Chaim, and Adam took that first breath, and it says, and he became a living soul. Now, at that moment, God imputed to Adam a complete vocabulary, a bank of vocabulary, and two seconds later, God was engaging Adam in, in dialogue. They were having discourse in the garden, and God then began to educate Adam about the trees uh, of which he could eat, and then he gave him directives to, uh, to cultivate the garden, to guard it. Uh, he gave him the directive to name the animals. God gave him uh, you know, positive directives. He gave him one negative directive, not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil, with a warning that in the day that he ate from it, he would surely die. But God, language existed among the members of the Godhead uh, before humanity ever even existed. And so when God created mankind, and we were created as theomorphs, finite analogs to God, and so we are said to be made in the image of God. Now God, under the Ten Commandments, forbid anything to be made, forbid us to make anything in His image. But God made us in his image. And so if you want to look at the closest thing in the material world to the image of God, just look in the mirror or look at another person. Because even though we are marked by sin, the image has been effaced but not erased. And so it's been impacted, but it's still there. We still have that image within us. And part of the function of that image, and there is a functional aspect to the image of God, to the Imago Dei, where we have the ability to think, to feel, to act, and so on. So these things are functional within us. And so the Word of God can then not only be understood within the mind, but it can be communicated verbally. And even right now, as I sit here talking to you who are present in, the, in my home with me, and those of you who are uh, watching this live stream on Zoom and on Facebook, and for those of you that are going to be listening to this later on podcast, because I have my digital recorder to the left of me, uh, you're all going to be uh, picking this up. So you're going to receive the transmission of this. Now, this assumes language serves as a reliable vehicle for the expression of ideas, Again, it talks about the integrity of language, and that language serves as a reliable vehicle for the expression of ideas. Because as I formulate thoughts in my mind, I can verbalize that and uh, send that out across the airwaves, and it can be picked up by your ears, or you can read the notes for yourself that I sent out to everybody. And so because we have a shared bank of vocabulary, and if I introduce new vocabulary to you, which I do, occasionally I'll come along and I will introduce new vocabulary. 
uh, new terminology, maybe theological terminology, maybe the hypostatic union. You say, what in the world is that? You know, can I be vaccinated against that? You know, I mean, you don't know what it means, so you don't quite know what to do with it. And so you don't know what it is until I explain it. And then once I, once I define it and explain it and put it into context, you say, okay, well, now I know. So if there's something in, in the bank of your vocabulary that's missing, that can be filled in, that can be explained. And that's part of what education is. It's learning new things. But because we have the shared bank of vocabulary, we can do this thing called communication. Uh, we can exchange ideas. Well, that's true from God to us. God communicates these things to us via the Spirit, because the Spirit is a person, and the Spirit is the third member of the Godhead who helps us to understand these things. And not only can we understand them, but we can communicate these things to others. So he makes Scripture understandable. Um, now, I have a quote here from Norman Geisler, and again, we're talking about just, we're just emphasizing the personhood of the Spirit. And uh, citing here from Geisler, he says, All the elements of personhood are attributed to the Holy Spirit in Scripture. He has a mind, and here he cites 1 Corinthians 12, 11, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, will teach you. Uh, he is also said to have a will, that all these things are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. And he has feelings. Here, citing Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So when we think about a person, we think of intellect, we think of volition or will, and we think of feelings. We think of those three things primarily. Now, we could move into other categories. We could talk about consciousness being a function and self-consciousness being a function as well of personhood. But, uh, but intellect, uh, but mind, uh, will and emotion. Those are things that we attribute to personhood. And clearly, clearly without question, these are all recognized as being attributable to the Holy Spirit. So again, just driving the point that the Holy Spirit is a person. Uh, and so we're talking about, again, the role of the Holy Spirit with regard to uh, salvation. But let me take a little bit of time to talk about some of the distinctives of the Old Testament with regard to the New Testament. Now, prior to the coming of God the Son into the world, the Holy Spirit had been active in the lives of saints, had been active in the lives of saints. One can think of in Exodus 31, uh, where the Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I have named Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And notice in verse 3, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. And what was it that the Spirit of God imparted to this man uh, that was necessary? Well, he says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship, because these men were going to be responsible for building some of the items that were going to be used, like, for example, with the worship at the tabernacle, later at the temple, uh, when Solomon built the temple. But these were things that were going to be constructed by a craftsman, a craftsman. And notice verse 4, to make artistic designs for work in gold, in silver, and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. Now that's fascinating to me. 
because this was a special project when you're talking about the tabernacle and the articles that were going to be used in the worship, uh, so much so that God the Holy Spirit came upon this craftsman to endow him not only with wisdom in how to make these things and to make them excellently, to make them perfectly according to God's design, but also to make them for beauty. Because when you study the tabernacle and later the temple, they were made for beauty. The color the robes of the high priest, the, the, the uh, color, uh, which was the same color fabric used for the, um, uh, the veil that separated the Kodesh from the Kodesh HaKodeshim, from the holy place of the holy, and the holy of holies. And, but when you look at these things, they were designed not only for function, but for beauty. Uh, but God uh, sent the Holy Spirit upon these craftsmen, and here he names the, the one in particular, uh, Bezalel, uh, the son of Uri, and this craftsman was going to be responsible for making these particular items. But again, it's just that the Holy Spirit came upon this one person. And by the way, the Spirit could come upon this person, and when the project was complete, the Spirit would leave the person, because it was only necessary to have the Spirit upon him for a period of time while the project was uh, being worked out. So it wasn't like it was a permanent thing, not like with us, because when we have the Holy Spirit, we can grieve the Spirit and we can quench the Spirit, but we cannot grieve Him or quench Him away. Um, but the Holy Spirit also came upon judges, came upon judges. Uh, one can think of Numbers eleven twenty five. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took the Spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders that is from Moses, upon the 70 elders, that they would help bear the responsibility of leadership. Now listen, I think some of our leaders today could, could benefit tremendously uh, from the wisdom of God <laughs> coming upon them, because we seem to be in short supply uh, when it comes to uh, governmental leadership. In fact, I think that there's a, a form of demonic stupidity uh, that has come upon some of the leaders within our nation. Uh, so anyway, but the Spirit could come upon people to help them function in leadership capacity. See, God cares about the details. He cares about empowering people to function in the everyday affairs of mankind, whether it's an artisan or a craftsman who's making uh, art, uh, articles to be constructed or crafted for the tabernacle or the temple, or for judges, or even for prophets. Notice in Ezekiel 2, 2, it says, And he spoke to me, and the Spirit of the Lord entered me and set me on my feet. Now, this is Ezekiel the prophet. And uh, this is the, uh, one of the only verses I'm aware of in the Old Testament where it says that the Spirit actually entered him rather than just simply coming upon him. But again, this was a temporary thing. The Spirit would come upon the kings of Israel. Uh, notice here with regard to Samuel, or excuse me, Saul, the first uh, king in Israel. Uh, it says here, Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy. And, uh, of course, this is talking about Saul. Now, later on, it was going to come upon David uh, in 1 Samuel 16, 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. That's David. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. And notice the use of the preposition there, upon. Came mightily upon David from that day forward. Now, the Spirit could uh, be taken from a person. 
Now, in the Old Testament, the Spirit did not indwell every believer and could be removed as an act of divine discipline. In fact, you see that in 1 Samuel 16, 14, where it says the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now, this did not mean that Saul lost his salvation. It's not what's going on here. It just meant that the divine enablement that Saul enjoyed to help him function in his leadership capacity was now taken from him. Not only did the Holy Spirit, not only was the Holy Spirit taken from Saul, but we're told in verse 14, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Now, isn't that interesting? And so here, uh, an evil spirit, we'll call it a demon, uh, was sent to terrorize Saul. Uh, so Saul here is under divine discipline. He's under divine discipline. That's what's going on here. And it says it three times in verse 15. It says, now Saul's servants then said, behold, now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. And then it says the same thing down in verse 16, that an evil spirit from God is on you. By the way, when David had his affair with Bathsheba, uh, David knew that he had messed up really bad. David knew he had messed up really bad. And David was afraid. He was afraid. And when you read Psalm 51, what you have is you have David's confession uh, with regard to this sin. In fact, uh, it says that right back up at the beginning, at the superscription. Uh, by the way, this was in the Hebrew text itself. I used to think that these superscriptions many years ago were added in by the, uh, by the people who translated the Bible, but this is actually part of the Hebrew text. It's actually part of the scripture itself. And so we know what's going on in the psalm because David tells us it was written for the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so David comes under divine discipline. David's getting a spanking. The Lord's disciplining him because he, is, uh, he has uh, fallen into sin uh, for a period of time. This is not just a one-and-done deal, and it's pretty serious him because not only had he committed adultery, but he was guilty of murder as well with regard to Uriah's, excuse me, uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. But David, in his prayer, prays to God. He says, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And so this is not a concern for loss of salvation. Now, this verse, this passage here cannot be prayed by a Christian today living in the dispensation of the church age because the Holy Spirit, we are actually sealed with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so we can, we're not in danger of losing the Spirit. Now, we can come under divine discipline. He whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That's right. And I've been skinned alive a few times. Let me tell you, you, you step out of line, God will deal with you. And discipline can even go to the point of physical death. I mean, it can be pretty severe, and it comes in stages. And God, when he, get, when he, get, when he pulls out the paddleboard, let me tell you, he'll, he'll work you over uh, but part of the divine discipline that was true under the dispensation of the Old Testament economy was that the Spirit could be taken from a person. And so David says, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And by the way, David, again, he's not worried about loss of salvation. Notice verse 12. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He's not talking about restoring salvation because salvation isn't lost. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. 
and sustain me with a willing spirit. By the way, I'll chase a little rabbit trail here. I love verse 13 because David, when he is forgiven by God, and God does forgive him, God does forgive him. Uh, And you can read Psalm 32 as well, because Psalm 32 kind of gives us a glimpse into what's going on with David, because when he says, when I kept quiet about my sin, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon me. When I kept quiet about my sin, in other words, when David left his sin unconfessed, uh, the Lord came down on him and gave, entered into divine discipline with David. Uh, so you can read about that in Psalm 32 as well. But I love this section here because once David is restored to fellowship with God, once he is forgiven and God does forgive him, notice he says in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Now, David had a teaching ministry prior to Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. But uh, David's sin uh, did not destroy his teaching ministry. And David says here in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to you. Now, I know uh, some people today that if they had committed a sin as bad as David committed, uh, there are some churches that would ban ban them for life. They'd never be allowed back in. Uh, but they don't think in terms of grace. They don't think in terms of how God thinks, and this is very unfortunate. Uh, But David recognizes that before the Lord, that once he is forgiven, even though he's committed a pretty terrible sin, and we can all admit that it's pretty terrible what he did, uh, nonetheless, once he's forgiven, he says, then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to you. So there's hope for restoration of ministry even after you have failed terribly. And uh, that doesn't mean you're not going to go through some divine discipline, uh, and that's, that's its own issue. But let me get back to the notes here. So the loss of the Spirit in the life of an Old Testament saint did not mean forfeiture of salvation. Rather, it meant loss of empowerment to a task. And this would be especially onerous to a king like Saul because it meant he would continue to serve as king but would lack the divine enablement necessary to perform the work. Thus, the king would have nothing more to rely on than his human resources, and this would prove woefully inadequate considering the huge responsibility of leadership. Without the enabling power of God the Holy Spirit, the king would be vulnerable to great anxiety and eventual collapse. And again, David feared this discipline when he had sinned against the Lord. Now, in the dispensation of the church age, which began in Acts chapter 2, and that's where we are right now, we are in the economy of the, of the church age. That is where we are at, okay, uh, with regard to the flow of human history. We are in the dispensation of the church age. Uh, now, in the time in which we live, things are a little different. God the Holy Spirit plays a key role in the salvation of the lost. Now, though we are not given all of the particulars, there is some mystery, and there is some mystery uh, uh, as to the details of how he works. It is still clear from the New Testament that the Holy Spirit has a special ministry related to the salvation of the lost. And apart from his work, let me be clear here, apart from his work, none can be saved. And so that's one of the things that I'm going to drive when we work throughout this, uh, this, the, the, the weeks ahead, that the Holy Spirit has a special ministry, and apart from his work, none can be saved. Uh, 
Now, the zealous evangelist who seeks to win the souls of the lost may, from a heart of compassion, employ every passage of Scripture related to salvation along with every compelling line of good reason, and yet in the end fail to bring even one person to Christ. Uh, because it, if, if you are preaching to an audience that is possessed with negative volition, who has become so recalcitrant and who has suppressed the truth for so long that, uh, that it doesn't matter how well-crafted or how well-reasoned or, well, or how biblical your, your presentation is, they're just not going to get it. Now, we have examples of this in the Bible. Now, I don't think that this is necessarily our age. I think we live in a little bit of a better time where there's a little more positive volition on display. But one can think back to the days of Noah. And remember that Peter uh, referred to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. And so Noah preached for 120 years. Now, how many converts did he have during that time? His wife, three sons, and three daughters. So apparently you had a household that was marked by positive volition. But Noah preached for 120 years, and yet uh, only his wife and three sons and three daughters were the only ones to enter the ark. Now that's got to be discouraging, and yet Noah was a success. Why? Because he was faithful to the thing to which the Lord called him. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 3, Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 3, we have a very fascinating passage there where Jeremiah is talking to the leadership and to the people of Israel, and he says, for, he says, for 23 years, I have faithfully delivered the word of the Lord to you, and you would not listen. Now think of that. For 23 years, he says, I faithfully delivered the word of the Lord to you, and you would not listen. Can you imagine preaching to the same audience for 23 years, and they just keep suppressing the truth and unrighteousness? This is what the majority did with Christ. Remember John 3.19. In John 3.19, John tells us that the light came into the world. That's Jesus. That the light came into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And so the majority of those who heard and saw Christ rejected him. That's just mind-blowing. That's just mind And listen, there's nothing wrong with the light. Jesus is perfect truth, perfect love, perfect righteousness on perfect display all the time. And everything he said and everything he did could not have been more perfectly said or more perfectly done than when he said it or when he did it, to whom he said it, in whatever context he found himself. And yet, even though he came as a light into the world, men loved the darkness rather than the light. John 12, 37, it says, Though he performed so many signs among them, yet they were not believing. Again, blows my mind because he raised the dead, he healed the sick, the blind to see, the mute to speak, the lame to walk, he fed the multitudes, he did so many signs before them. And even though he performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing. And it's not a problem of truth, it's not a problem of revelation. The problem is the heart, because at the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. And the heart of man is corrupt and desperately sick, Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us, and who can know it? 
And uh, you think of in Romans 1.18, where God has revealed himself through the creation. That's called general revelation. And he has made himself known uh, within mankind. Uh, that's called the sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine, that God works within each human heart. And yet, it says over and over again that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so uh, God is no bully. He does not force himself upon anyone. And of course, you have three times in Romans 1 there where it says that God gave them over to their sinful passions. He says, all right, you want to reject what light I give you? You want to go down that road? I'll let you. There's consequences, by the way, uh, but I'll let you go. There. I'll give you over to that. Um, and so uh, you must have the work of the Holy Spirit coupled with positive volition. Now, Chafer, and I'm going to quote him here, and then we're going to wrap it up here in just a moment. I have this quote by Chafer. He says, Every soul winner becomes aware, sooner or later, of the fact that the vast company of unsaved people do not realize the seriousness of their lost estate. Nor do they become alarmed even when the most direct warning and appeal is given to them. They may be normally intelligent and keen to comprehend any opportunity for personal advancement in material or intellectual things, and yet there is over them a spell of indifference and neglect toward the things that would secure for them any right relation to God. Chafer goes on, he says, All the provisions of grace with the present and future blessedness of the redeemed, are listened to by these people without a reasonable response. They are perhaps sympathetic, warm-hearted and kind. They are full of tenderness toward all human suffering and need, but their sinfulness before God and their imperative need of a Savior are strangely neglected. Chafer goes on, he says, They lie down to sleep without fear and awaken to a life that is free from thought or obligation toward God. The faithful minister, I think of Noah, think of Jeremiah, uh, think of John the Baptist, think of, any, think of Paul, think of even the Lord himself. The faithful minister soon learns to his sorrow that his most careful presentation of truth and earnest appeal produces no effect upon them. And the question naturally arises, how then can these people be reached with the gospel? Now, we're going to answer that question. We're going to, we're going to dive into this. We're, we're, going to, we're going to seek to answer that question as to how they can be lost. And we have to take into account the work of God, the Holy Spirit, concerning our salvation. And what, what role does the Spirit play in bringing people to faith in Christ? And what is the human side of the equation? Because there is a volitional aspect to it. Because if the heart is negative, if people are displaying negative volition, then even if we could be as perfect in, as Christ with all that we say and all that we do, we would get no better response than Christ himself received when he was upon the earth. And that's just the reality of the situation. We may not like it, but we have to live in reality. We have to live in reality. All right, well, if we are finished for this evening, then let's go ahead and uh, wrap this up with a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can gather together this evening. We thank you for this time of freedom that we enjoy, for this gathering together of study in your word. We thank you for your word, which gives us insights into realities that we could never know, except that you have spoken. 
And Father, we thank you that we can take this time to move into this study on soteriology, that we can be looking at the role of God, the Holy Spirit, and how he works with regard to the salvation of the lost. Father, we just pray this evening as we close out this study that this will be a time that we can take the things that we've learned and uh, be able to apply it to our lives and grow thereby. Father, we thank you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.